0: Hello, welcome to Seeing Saw, the official spiral podcast. I'm Catherine Bray, Saw fan and film critic, and chained at the neck to a winch with me in a deserted
1: mausoleum are my two ill-fated colleagues. I'm Anna Bogutska, I'm a writer, Saw fan, Amanda Youngstan, and co-founder of the horror collective The Final Girls.
2: I'm Charlie Shackleton, I'm a documentary filmmaker and occasional film critic, and yes, I eat, sleep, and dream the Saw franchise.
0: So in case you don't know... Where have you have been living under a rock? There is a new Saw film coming very soon. A brand new page in the franchise spirals from the book of Saw stars Chris Rock, Samuel L. Jackson, Max mingella and Marisol Nichols and it's out on May 14th or May 17th if you're in the UK. And in preparation for it, we have been re-watching and re-analyzing all the Saw films that came before it. In this episode, it's the turn of the fourth instalment, Saw 4. There will be accomplices, there will be tapes found in stomachs, there will be death by giant ice blocks, and there will be spoilers. So if you're new to the franchise, we'd suggest watching Saw 4 first, then listening to this episode. Anna, tell us what's going on in the saw as we pick back up with Saw 4.
1: So at this point, the year is 2007, and Saw has completely entered into mainstream pop culture. There's references, well, a ton of references in Scary Movie 4. There's references to Saw in the Sopranos and South Park and CSI. And so this is already permeating all of mainstream pop culture. So it's hugely successful at this point, but this is the first installment where we don't get Lee and Al writing or co-writing the script instead we get a new team of writers we've got Patrick Melton and Marcus Dunstan and Thomas Fenton penning the fourth installment of the Saw franchise. Now before we peel back Jigsaw's scalp
0: and conduct a forensic autopsy on Saw 4 let's go over exactly what goes down in this particular film. So Charlie, Professor Charlie Shackleton the recap please if you would.
2: Thank you, yes. Hold on to your hats for this one, because our new writers really do cram it in to Saw 4. So we open in the morgue with one of my, I think, all-time favourite Saw franchise characters introduced here. It's pathologist Dr Adam Hefner. He's conducting the autopsy on John Kramer, the jigsaw killer, and in his stomach he finds, what else, but a tape. He immediately calls in Detective Mark Hoffman, who we met very briefly in the previous film, but will now essentially be leading the Jigsaw investigation in this one, and he gives him the tape. Hoffman plays the tape, and it informs him that although Jigsaw may be dead, the games will continue, and that indeed Hoffman himself will be tested. Meanwhile, defence attorney Art Blank and another man of uh, profession unknown called Trevor wake up in a kind of mausoleum And they're in this trap where a big chain is going through a central device that will pull them both toward each other. Art Blank has his mouth sewn up and Trevor has his eyes sewn up. So it's almost this biblical parable about miscommunication. Very high concept jigsaw trap this. Anyway, the game plays out and Art Blank survives and sort of tears his mouth open very gruesomely.
0: Art Blank, definitely one of my favourite names in a franchise, replete with excellent names.
2: A SWAT team, meanwhile, is led by Officer Daniel Rigg, who you'll remember from the previous film, and Detective Mark Hoffman, into this underground environment where they find the body of Detective Alison Kerry, who was killed in the last film by having her ribcage torn out. Also at the scene are FBI special agents Peter Strom and Lindsay Perez, two new characters, who have been in contact with Alison Kerry as their liaison on the Jigsaw case, and now, obviously her having died, have showed up to see what's what. They inform Mark Hoffman that they received one last message from Alison before her death, which said, Open the door and you will find me, along with a mysterious key which could be for anything. They speculate about whether there's a new Jigsaw apprentice because who could have possibly hung Alison's body up in the way that it's been hung? Jigsaw would have been too frail and Amanda Young wouldn't have had enough body strength. Who could it possibly be, they wonder.
0: So we're looking for a a strong person of some kind.
2: (laughs) Jigsaw's back and he's strong. (laughs) Meanwhile, Officer Rig becomes obsessed with locating his missing colleague, Detective Eric Matthews, who you'll remember from the earlier films, last seen crawling out of the uh, bathroom with his foot bludgeoned in and having a scuffle with Amanda Young. Lovely Donnie Wahlberg. And it's starting to affect Officer Rigg's marriage. Late one night, while he's obsessing over this, he's kidnapped by one of Jigsaw's trademark Pig-headed assistants,
0: trademark <laughs> pig-headed assistants. <laughs> That's
2: his trademark. What are you talking about? Would have no, it's true, that it's true. While Detective Hoffman is also in a room with a pig-headed mask, and it certainly seems like he's been kidnapped. Let's assume one might assume he has also been kidnapped. One
0: might certainly assume Hoffman has been
2: kidnapped. Rig wakes up and is informed by a jigsaw cassette tape that Detective Eric Matthews is still alive and has been essentially living in jigsaw captivity for six months. And it's being held by a mysterious man, which he sees on a video monitor, alongside Detective Mark Hoffman, who is also being held prisoner. The tape informs Rigg that Detective Eric Matthews has 90 minutes to save himself. Now, this tape that he's playing is one of the more cryptic jigsaw tapes, and I want to be quite specific with what it says, because this is going to be important, that Detective Eric Matthews has 90 minutes to save himself, and that Detective Hoffman's, quote, fate is linked to Eric's survival... And that Rig quote must let go and truly save them. So make of that what you will. Rig, from this point on, encounters a series of jigsaw victims in various traps. There's a woman called Brenda who is a pimp who uh, has her scalp pulled off by a horrible mechanical chair. There's a man called Ivan Landsness who is a serial rapist who has his limbs boinged off into the walls.
0: (laughs) You make it sound sweet.
2: It's a really horrific scene, but they Mm. do boing. (laughs) There's the parents, Rex and Morgan, parents of a young daughter named Jane. And in this scenario, Rex has been abusing the daughter and the mother, Morgan, has been refusing to turn him in to the police. And they're spiked together in a room with a series of big metal rods through them, We'll get into all of these, uh, I'm sure, in more detail later. But basically, in each test, Rig is encouraged by Jigsaw to, quote, see as I see and save as I save. These are all slogans written on the walls in the crime scenes and he's essentially urging him to resist the urge which we're told has been Rigg's impulse in his policing career to save everyone and try and do everything and instead to let people save themselves.
1: It's a live, love, love, laugh of Jigsaw, isn't it?
2: And so initially with these tests, Rig is trying to save the day, but he finds often that when he tries to help, it actually makes the situation worse for these people. And as the test goes on, he kind of becomes more jaded over time as he's conditioned by Jigsaw to sort of... Follow the jigsaw method.
0: And care less, which is what we want from someone in this position of authority, that they care less.
2: Exactly. Meanwhile, special agents Peter Strahm and Lindsay Perez follow closely behind, visiting each crime scene just after Rig has left it. At the first crime scene, they see photos of all of the victims, paparazzi shots that Jigsaw or whoever is acting on Jigsaw's behalf has presumably had taken while researching these victims. And among them is a photograph of Jigsaw's ex-wife, Jill Tuck, who we saw briefly in the previous film in a hallucination flashback sequence. So they then take Jill Tuck into custody and interrogate her, where it's revealed that Jigsaw modus operandi seems to have been based or developed kind of in response to the approach of a drug clinic that Jill Tuck runs, where the ethos is very much to help people and offer a beneficial service for people with addictions. Cherish your life.
1: Are you saying that Jigsaw took the work of his wife and took credit for it?
2: These are feminist masterpieces, these films, Mm -hmm. as we (laughs) well know. At another crime scene, they discover that all of the victims, what they have in common is that they were all clients of old defence attorney Art Blank, who you may remember from the trap at the beginning of the film, who is also revealed to be the man overseeing the hostage-taking of Detective Hoffman and Detective Matthews.
0: So, are we to assume Art Blank is an acolyte of Jigsaw?
2: He may have been turned.
0: He may have been turned. Perhaps he's the new acolyte.
2: He's keeping Hoffman and Matthews in this sort of elaborate scales trap where they're on this massive platform – it's so complicated, this one – where Detective Eric Matthews is standing on a big block of ice. There are industrial-scale heaters pointed at the ice that will melt the ice, and if it melts away, eventually he'll be hung by the neck. Also, if it melts away, he will no longer be applying the pressure to the ice that is required to keep the platform that both him and Hoffman are positioned on stable, in which case Hoffman will dip down Pushing the water from the ice to his side of the platform, the water will make contact with a series of electrical cables and they will electrocute Mark Hoffman, we assume, and kill him after Matthews has just been killed. Simple as that.
0: Simple as that. (laughs)
2: Um, And Art Blank, of course, is the man overseeing this all. Agent Perez is then rushed to hospital after encountering a jigsaw booby trap. At one of the crime scenes, it's basically just a little Billy the Puppet that explodes in her face.
0: But lovely to see Billy again. Always like to see him.
2: Meanwhile, Strom returns to the police station and continues his interrogation of Jill Tuck, who reveals that John went on his descent into madness and became the jigsaw killer after she suffered a miscarriage because of the actions of a drug addict named Cecil Adams, who in robbing the clinic slams a door open and it hits Jill in the stomach and causes a miscarriage. This was prior to... Jigsaw's diagnosis with cancer prior to him driving the car off the cliff, but one crucial step in his descent into uh, murderousness. We find out that Jigsaw then went on to test Cecil Adams, the drug addict responsible, in his first ever Jigsaw trap, which we see a little flashback to. And it also led Jigsaw to sever his ties with his business partner, Art Blank, that guy, with whom he'd previously been building low-income housing. Strahm works out that the final test will happen at the Gideon meatpacking plant, Art and John Kramer's first joint project, which has since been converted into one of John's many workshops. Back in the room with Art Blank, we see that he himself is wearing a jigsaw trap on his body and assume that therefore he is also acting on behalf of Jigsaw against his will. And he reveals to his two hostages, Detective Mark Hoffman and Detective Eric Matthews, that they will all be free to go and he can deactivate the trap after 90 minutes has elapsed, as long as the door to the room does not open. He also gives Eric Matthews a gun and tells him that he can use it as he sees fit. Rig, however, is still determined to save Detective Eric Matthews and arrives at the meatpacking plant and begins to approach the door thinking that he has to go through it to save them before the 90 minutes is up when in fact the opposite is true. Matthews sees him approaching the door and tries to stop him by shooting him through it but the door opens anyway and triggers a device where two massive great ice blocks fall from the ceiling and smush Detective Eric Matthews' head Popsack a tomato. (laughs) Rig shoots Art after this because he thinks that he's reaching for a gun and obviously assumes that he's acting on behalf of Jigsaw. It's a fair assumption. It turns out to actually be a cassette. What doesn't? Saying that Rig has failed his test by trying to save Eric when he should have allowed him to save himself.
1: So he's failed because he's too efficient.
2: At that moment, Hoffman rises up from his seat. We assumed he was electrocuted when the icebox fell, but no. He's up and on his feet, and he reveals that he's been an apprentice of Jigsaw all along. And then music plays. No, no, there's more. (laughs) The special agent Stram arrives at the plant, opens a door with the key he was given at the beginning by Alison Kerry before she died. Inside, he finds Jeff Denlon from Saw 3, and the entire (laughs) film is revealed to have been taking place concurrently with the previous film in the franchise. And the
0: music plays.
2: No,pe not quite. John (laughs) Kramer... Has only just been killed. And now Jeff turns the gun on Strom, thinking that he has Jeff's kidnapped daughter. Strom kills him in self defense, and Hoffman now arrives to lock Strom inside the room with all of the bodies from Saw 3. And cut, we return to the autopsy, which it turned out took place after all of the events that I've just been retelling, and we hear the tape again and scene. And the music plays. And the music plays. (laughs) I love it. It's one
0: of the most extended climaxes full of just sort of so many twists. And Charlie, I have to say, absolutely heroic work there because it is one of the most layered plots in the franchise. I
2: left out so much. (laughs) So much.
0: So in summary, this is essentially Jigsaw's relentless promotion of a healthy work-life balance continuing apparently from beyond the grave and we get a new acolyte to continue the rest of the franchise with.
2: Yes, the arrival of Detective Mark Hoffman, one of my favourite characters from the franchise. Absolutely love Hoffman. I'm a self-proclaimed Hoffmaniac. <laughs>
0: <laughs> love it. The film opens with an autopsy. I kind of love this scene. It's a bit different from anything else in the franchise. Apparently the Tobin doll being autopsied because it is a doll. It's not Tobin Bell lying there. Oh, is the most expensive thing in a Saw movie at this point.
2: I mean, the autopsy scene in general is an incredible thing to open with and out of keeping with the rest of the film. It's very kind of slow and moderately paced. Of course, we get to meet Dr. Adam Hefner, which is a very important moment. But in general, you're just allowed to sit with this really gruesome process and obviously the great reveal of the tape before what then becomes a very kinetic film. And it's Mm -hmm. quite a nice way to ground you in the universe before it gets going
1: I mean it's kind of an amazing way to kickstart this film as well because the boldness of killing off your main villain the most iconic character of the entire franchise at the end of saw 3 and then to start with this you know where are you going to go from here What do you do? He's definitely dead. They completely eliminate the possibility of Jigsaw having escaped in any way or having faked his own death in some way at the end of 3 by showing us his body.
0: It's also an opportunity for them to use flashbacks to get us more into Jigsaw's backstory, which I really like. The trap with, is it Cecil or Cecil? I've heard both. The Junkie, which I think chronologically in the Saw universe is set up as Jigsaw's first kill. I really like that that trap is a little bit... I mean, it's not ropey, it works, but Mm. it's very much a guy who's evolving his methodology. He hasn't got it all figured out yet. I think I said in maybe the first episode that he's this DIY genius. Everything always plays out perfectly. But it's actually really lovely to see that the chair falls apart and the first time out of the gate, he didn't have it all set up. And he's not relying on a puppet or a tape. He's just there mano a mano with the guy who he wants to push his face into some knives. It's kind of a back to basics jigsaw. It's nice. I like it. It's minimalist.
2: Well, talking of his DIY skills, we also get a sense of his celebrity in this film, not only as a killer, but we also see him on the cover of the Journal of Civil Engineering.
0: And is that because he's a civil engineer who's gone on to become a famous serial (laughs) killer?
2: Because the fact that he couldn't build a functioning chair makes me think (laughs) maybe... I mean, I know that was a flashback. Maybe that was long before he was on the cover. He'd learned to build a chair by that point.
0: What is it what? that you think civil engineers do, though? Because <laughs> they're not chair makers.
2: Well, you can say that again. <laughs> <laughs> Talking of his very first trap with Cecil, where he makes Cecil push his face through the gate of knives, we've talked about how sometimes the simplest games are the best, mm. as Jigsaw himself said, and that really doesn't get simpler than that. It is a shame when the device collapses and he just falls out of it, although quite gruesome. However, I think it might be the only moment in the franchise where Jigsaw is then a physical threat to someone. Because when Cecil gets out, I mean it's a great scene anyway because the actor who plays Cecil really gives it his all with his strangled voice going like, oh, come on, man. Like, let me out of this thing. And then he sort of pricks Jigsaw's pomposity a little bit when Jigsaw's like giving him his whole spiel and he talks about his soul and he goes, I don't have a soul. <laughs> but then when he falls out and he's like, I'm going to kill you now, mm. Jigsaw's like, come at me, bro. I've got this. He's preparing for a fight. And then, of course, he just moves out of the way like a matador.
1: <laughs> I mean, he
2: barely prepares for a fight. He's like, sure. He's sure. He'd try. He crouches. <laughs> I think he's ready to wrestle.
0: And then he steps aside and Cecil goes into the conveniently placed box of razor wire. Lovely. The,
2: the generous interpretation of that, I think, is that that was a planned version of the trap that he put uh, Paul Leahy in in the first film, the big wire maze, mm-hmm. because it does really just look like a box of wire. Maybe he just had it lying around.
1: I think you're correct. I think it's a trial version of the more elaborate wire trap from the first film. So Tobin Bell, I mean, we're going to keep
0: coming back to Tobin Bell throughout this podcast, but I think it's worth saying that this is a really lovely instrument for him in terms of the emotional notes that he gets to play. We're getting flashbacks to him becoming Jigsaw, but we're also getting emotional flashbacks to his life with Jill and seeing him
1: in his pre-Jigsaw mode a little bit more. We get to meet John Kramer here, not just Jigsaw. And it's a real opportunity for Tobin Bell to shine as an actor. And also, I think, interestingly, probably the film where we get to see an emotional Jigsaw. It's like his bat cave, his little Mm -hmm. DIY workshop, his trapping of Cecil, And he speaks to his acolytes in a way where it's like, you have to completely divorce yourself from the emotion. It needs to be completely drained from you. It's all about the trap and the process and the philosophy. But here he lets his own anger and his own personal attachment and anger at Cecil to shine through because he he was never intending to let that man go. Come on, let's be real.
0: And I have to say as well, Chef's Kiss, my compliments to the casting director, because it's not only Tobin Bell, as we've said, Cecil is amazing, but this entire franchise is just ridiculously well cast from the victims through to the Acolytes and the principal cast members. I mean, definite shout out to Second City comedian Marty Adams, who plays the uh, man whose limbs all get pulled off.
2: Ivan Lansness.
0: Yeah, that's the character's name. To me, he's Second City comedian (laughs) Marty Adams.
2: He does a very good job. That scene really is... I mean, Saw 4 actually used to be my least favourite in the franchise, and somehow through endless rewatches, I think it might have become my favourite. But the thing that always used to put me off really was just that scene with Ivan Lansness because that is like a living nightmare. The fact that it has that red tint throughout and obviously what the guy has done to merit being put in the trap is so grim and it's so littered around the room literally. And then what happens to him is up there with the most gruesome events in the entire franchise.
0: But that's why it's good. But I think the changing position of Saw 4 in your ranking of the Saw movies, I think is really interesting because Saw 4 is very much, for me, a film for the fans. I think Saw 2 or Saw 3, you could start there and obviously it wouldn't make as much sense as starting at the beginning. But Saw 4, I think is one that you really, you know, you'd be all at sea. And it works very well in a double with three because of, obviously, the timeframe stuff that we've talked about. But... When Jeff shows up in the corridor, if you haven't seen three, I mean, <laughs> you're going to be
2: lost. You can really feel the change of writers between three and four because it goes from being, I mean, three, although they knew that there were more films coming, feels almost like a wrapping of a bow up on films one through three. You have all these callbacks, you're revisiting in flashback events from the previous films, very much tying up narrative arcs Four really feels like the beginning of something. There's so many new characters. There's so much embedded in the plot here that doesn't even really get delivered until later films. And I can only imagine what people thought of it who just turned up because it was like the biggest movie out that week and hadn't seen the previous films. It must have been a very confusing experience, albeit I suppose one that still has these traps coming along every 10 minutes that are just these amazing spectacle pieces.
1: One of the things that rewatching watching 4 has made me appreciate is the fact that Both three, which I completely agree with you, Charlie, kind of ties up neatly a first phase of the Saw universe. This second phase picks up the baton of playing around with the audience and our expectations of where the horror of Saw will come from. Because there's quite a lot of, there's really gruesome brain surgery in the third one, of course. But here, again, we are starting with our main antagonist dead on a slab in a laboratory. So the threat of him has disappeared. But there's also, you know, it's a different form of body horror because we're confronted with the corpse of the icon of the Saw universe.
2: And the thing I think that it took me like a few rewatches to really appreciate is that these movies are such puzzles that if anything the more complex they get and watching for I mean when I was writing that synopsis out on my latest re-watching of this film I honestly had to just keep pausing and checking bits earlier on to make sure I hadn't missed anything like cross-referencing things the beginning and end of the film but if anything that just makes you even more excited about the inevitable moment where it all comes together at the end and I mean there's still aspects of this film that I'm trying to understand 10 re-watches later and we'll continue to search for answers in. 10 rewatches from now.
0: We might have put some of the pieces of Saw 4 together, but there's one man who knows the puzzle better than most. The director of Saw's 2, 3 and 4, Darren Bausman. And Charlie, you were lucky enough to speak with him.
2: I did. We spoke about a lot of the saw universe, as well as his new return to the series with the new film in the franchise, Spiral. And of course, his love of magic tricks. So, hey, Darren, I'm Charlie. I thought first, if you don't mind, we would revisit your history with the Saw franchise and talk a little bit about Saws 2 through 4, which I've been rewatching this week. I've rewatched all of the films over the last uh, seven days. It's been quite a marathon. And I think, however many times I've seen them all, something that's only really struck me this time around is one of the things that I think makes them so satisfying. And especially, I think, your three contributions to the saga is that unlike so many horror sequels, which seem to view the films that came before as a sort of inconvenience, this set of facts that has to be either worked around or just openly contradicted, the Saw sequels always feel like they see what's come before as this sort of challenge, that we're going to tell a new story, but somehow make it fit into this already labyrinthine mythology that's been established, which I think as a viewer makes them only more satisfying to watch because they really reward an investment and focus. So I wonder if before we talk about what you went on to do, we could just talk about when you first came to the franchise and how you saw the challenge of making a sequel to Saw.
3: Yeah, well, thanks. I mean, for specifically going into Saw 2, which was the first time I have ever directed anything, I was terrified about... Paying respect and homage to the original film because so many times sequels are where they jump the shark and also sequels is what the second one is going to determine if this is a franchise. If, if we bombed the sequel, I think that the franchise would have gone in a different trajectory. So I had a couple of, of thoughts very early on, which is we have to pay homage to the original, not only through Jigsaw, but through iconic locales and, and going back to the bathroom. I think that kind of set the trajectory moving forward that every film had to address what came before and set up new threads that would go after. And I think that one of the things the writers have all done very expertly in this franchise is they're constantly planting seeds that will not pay off in that film, that will not pay off maybe in the next film, but in the film after that, you'll get some resolution on that. And I think what that does is it helps the entire franchise feel completely integrated. In, that each story needs the one before and after it, at least for those initial films. We went to painstaking detail because at that time when we were making them, there was this website called House of Jigsaw. And we knew the fans on that website would would go through the movie with a fine-tooth comb looking for inconsistencies. So I don't think they realized how much the f- the fandom had in shaping what would become. And
2: I guess you always had another chance to go back and fix things that people may have spotted.
3: Yeah, that was my one of my favorite parts. Is that if we screwed up or made a mistake, it was purposeful, and then we just <laughs> uh, reveal you that in the next movie. So that was uh, you're 100 right on that. And by the way, that did happen quite a lot. Can
2: you remember anything they caught you on?
3: Oh, there's so much they caught us on. I mean, it, one of the big things that they would do is that they would they would frame grab things because a lot of times we would destroy the sets and have to rebuild them. And so there would be frame grabs that the fans would do about, like, the bathroom, for example, and find an inconsistency in the tile pattern. And then we would just go on the message boards and be like, no, there's something hidden there that characters never found. Like, we would do that. From a story standpoint, I mean, there are lots of times that uh, we as filmmakers have made mistakes that the fans called us out on because – that's part of the fun of the franchise is to figure out, was it a mistake or is it something that will come off in a, in a later film? I mean, even in Spiral, we do the same thing where we plant a bunch of seeds that go nowhere, but the idea is they will go somewhere.
2: And you talk about planting seeds, and I think as well as specific plot details, one of the things that that Saw 2 really did in hindsight is establish the formula, if anything more so than the original Saw. You know, these two parallel narrative strands where you have police hunting for the scene of the crime, as it were, and then this series of traps that our hapless uh, victims fall prey to. Yeah, How did you go about balancing those two strands in a way that, that then became the model for so many of the films to follow?
3: I started as an editor prior to becoming a director. And I think that when you're editing narratives, to me, one of my favorite devices is cross-cutting to build tension, cutting between two different storylines taking place it also allows you to condense time. When you're in one location, let's just say it was only set in the house, you're kind of limited to what you can cut to and how you can span time without it feeling choppy. But when you're cross-cutting, you can cut time out. You can cut around continuity issues. Look at a movie like Silence of the Lambs, the original film. when You have the cross-cutting between Clarice and the house and the SWAT team descending upon the wrong house somewhere else. I mean, that was another a huge inspiration because it just built tension because the minute you think we're going to show you what happens, we cut to something else somewhere else, which I think keeps the audience on the edge of their seat. So it was an editing technique that I was a fan of, and then I just put that into the movies as well.
2: Another thing from the first film that you certainly had to live up to, and I'm sure audiences going into the sequels on original release were very much looking for, was you know a twist to match that first legendary twist, which that playing with the the temporality of the films allows you to do so ably in both two
3: and four. I mean, the twist became a thorn, at least on my side, because audiences caught on what we were doing, meaning that there was going to be a twist. And so at frame one, they were trying to figure the twist out. I think what made Saw 1 so amazing is you didn't realize it was a twist. You went into it just watching a movie and then you realize it was a twist. and Maybe in the same thing in Saw 2, you didn't realize there was going to be something, but by the time Saw Two occurred, everyone realized what they were looking for. And it's like a magician. If a magician comes up to you and says, do you want to see a card trick? The first thing I do is stare at their hands the entire time. I'm not looking necessarily at the cards of their face. I'm looking at their hands to see if I can figure out what it is they're doing. And so I think my love of magic, I'm I'm huge into magic now, is because I think the Saw films had to be designed like magic tricks. We had to basically show you our left hand while the right hand was actually doing the work and hopefully do it in a way that the audience wasn't going to see the man behind the curtain or the mirrors that we were using to create those twists at the end.
2: Yeah. What I quite like about especially three and four is unlike the first one where the dynamic seems to be you know that this is deceptively simple that you think you're watching a very straightforward story and actually there's been a layer of plot going on that you weren't aware of in 3 and 4 it feels like it's very complex on its face it's a real like challenge to piece it all together even as you watch along which as someone who enjoys puzzle solving in in various forms i find so stimulating to try and kind of keep up with it in a way that inevitably resists For me, at least, I don't know if I'm very naive, but solving it before the end because you're running breakneck just to keep up with it all.
3: I think that the other thing that we try to do is layer multiple twists in there. So maybe you solved one of them, but not all of them. So when Saw 2, for example, you had a few different things going on. You had Detective Matthews, your son is in a safe place. Well, your son is actually in a safe. The twist being he's right there next to you. And you had the live video feeds happening at the same, or the not live video feeds happening at the same time. So maybe if you got part of something, you didn't get the whole thing. And then we tried to continue that on and build the twists as we were making the movies. We'd find new things we could do to kind of put in there, to feather in there, to say, you know what, they might get this, but what if we did this as well? So a secondary twist and a third twist as well.
2: And then obviously on a smaller scale within this massive puzzle that is the franchise and then the puzzle of each film's plotting, you have the kind of set piece puzzles of these traps. I'm interested to hear you talk about which traps work best for you, which are most memorable, because for me, the ones that are always the most effective are those where you really get time to understand the mechanism and therefore put yourself in the place of it and imagine how you would respond to whatever choice is being presented for you. And I think unlike, say, the first film, where most of the traps are fairly fleetingly glimpsed through these flashbacks, your films seem to linger on the how much more and and really allow you to kind of put yourself in the position.
3: The traps have always been the most fascinating part from a directing standpoint. And first thing that not a lot of people know is the traps are the very last thing that we figure out. The script is written with placeholders. It'll say trap one goes here, trap two goes here. So the traps progress throughout the pre-production process to what we're actually going to do. And sometimes days before we're filming, we're, we're redesigning the traps for me one of the most important aspects is the traps work the way they say they work meaning that if we're going to say that something occurs to you if you screw up we want to make sure that it actually would work that way so we have engineers actually build the traps so first off i love just showing those mechanisms because those gears really work the pulleys really work from as simple as you know the ice block scene that ends up killing detective matthews to the twisty tim scene that twists the guy's arms around and breaks them all those actually do what we say they do. Uh, I love that. I've also been a huge fan of the anticipation. It's not the moment of death, it is the lead up to the moments of death. It's the gears turning, it's the lights blinking, it's the counter counting down. It's that you know something terrible is gonna happen. So I think that to me, you need to spend time on those elements to I think really put the audience in that mindset as well as to me, it's the traps aren't scary, it's are the people going to do what needs to happen to get themselves out of the traps that's scary. So the more time you can linger on the person making those moral dilemmas and those physical things, like, am I am I going to rip this part of my body off to get out? I think that to me is where the fear comes in, not the actual moment the trap goes off.
2: Yeah, for me, it's definitely that what would you do thought process. And it's funny because obviously so much of it is horrific, but on some level, it's also the same kind of what would
3: you do? There's
2: something very basic and mechanical about so much of it that tickles some part of the
3: brain. I think for me, even though I love the complexity of the engineering of the traps, I think the simpler the trap, the better it is. I think to me, one of the most effective traps in the Saw universe may be the needle trap, because it is so simplistic and basic and primal that you understand it by looking at it. You can glance at it and you understand what it is but i think the more simple they are and the more basic you can look at them and you you understand the danger i think the better they are yeah see i have to i'm very intrigued to talk more with you
2: about the subsequent films but i have to quickly pick a bone with you which is the the needle trap absolutely one of my favorites always frustrated me that she just gets thrown in there because i want to see someone try and climb down in a way that they don't get pricked by all the needles. I picture myself like, would you put your foot there? Would you try and like press against the sides of the pit to keep yourself above it? And we don't get to
3: see the process. Well, do you know, there's there's always multiple movies out of any single movie. And it's the movie that's in your head when you first read the script. Then there's the movie that you shoot based on time restrictions. You actually have to film the movie. And then there's the movie that it becomes in the edit process. None of the movies that you end up seeing are necessarily the movies that either were shot or in our heads. Each trap is so much bigger and more complex and they get whittled down. And so, for example, in the needle trap scene, that day is a day that I remember very well and I've talked about in the past. This is one of our first ideas, let's let's put a pit of needles. And we had a few hundred needles that didn't even cover a side of the bottom. So then we're like, we need more needles. So we got a couple thousand needles and those thousand needles barely was able to put a floor on the bottom. So now we're ready to shoot this scene. We're shooting Saw Two in like, I don't know, five days. So now we're having to get more needles. So we finally get the pit to a point that I'm like, okay, we can throw someone in there and one real syringe fell in the pit because we were taking real syringes, we were taking the tips off and putting fiber optics in there. So now we have a real package of needles, I think they came in three, in the pit. We couldn't start filming until every single one, it was literally finding a needle in a needle stack. We could not film until those were taken out. And add complex to that, Shawnee Smith was pregnant that no one knew about except me during this scene. And I was like, we can't throw her in there with real needles in there. So that scene that may have been some huge storyboarded 10-day shoot was whittled down to you have 45 minutes to shoot it, go.
2: (laughs) Okay. Well, that is a good explanation. And now I guess you know how Jigsaw feels. It's complicated to set these traps up. Yeah, right. (laughs) So you uh, obviously then uh, departed from the franchise after Saw 4, and I wonder how you felt at that moment, knowing presumably that there were going to be more and soon, about letting your baby into someone else's hands after three films, how much you knew about what they had planned for the subsequent films and how you felt about them when you went and saw them as a punter.
3: You know, looking back, you know, that whole thing about hindsight is always twenty twenty. I, I, in retrospect, I was glad to get out. I did three movies back to back to back with no break. They didn't need me anymore. The prop guys, the camera guys, the cinematographer, the editor, they were the same for all my movies. By the time Saw 4 was happening, they knew what they were doing. I would make a bad directorial choice, and the camera guy would be like, Darren, don't you remember in Saw 3 you did this? You can't do that in Saw 4. And I'd be like, oh, he's right. So it got to the point that it stopped being challenging to me because they knew what they were doing more than I knew what I was doing. So I had to get away and do something that was dangerous and re-gave me that, that shot of adrenaline when you step foot on set. And I couldn't think of anything more outlandish and outside of the box than making a rock opera with Paris Hilton. I mean, that was about as weird and out there as you can go. And so that excited me. But I will tell you that when the next few Saw films came out, I got jealous. And then when the next Saw films came out, I got angry. (laughs) Just because the jealousy, because I was like, I could be doing that, I should be there. So I get a lot fatter and lose a lot more hair. And now I'm like angry and I'm like, I need to go back. I have to do this, 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 and this. I mean, listen, I think that they did some interesting things in the subsequent films, absolutely. But for me, the favorite of my early films that I did was Saw 3. And why I loved Saw 3 was you got to know this relationship between John Kramer and Amanda and it made it more than a horror film, more than a torture porn film, more than any of that. There was real characters that you cared about and you understood why they were doing what they were doing. And I kind of missed that. I missed those moments in it. You have an amazing, outstanding actor in Tobin Bell. And I just wished to see scenes that weren't being shown. But yeah, there was definite jealousy because it's a family. Like I said, the crew all stayed the same. And so it's like you, you get so close with people on set And then you leave that set, it's like leaving the family. So it was a nostalgic feeling every time I saw a trailer, and there was also sadness every time I saw one.
2: So we talked earlier about monitoring the fan reactions to all of these films. What was your reaction when you first heard that Chris Rock was a fan, and indeed such a fan that he wanted to uh, resurrect the franchise?
3: I mean, it's such a weird, surreal... I mean, to even say those names in the same sentence with the Saw film, like Chris Rock and Saw... It's crazy. I didn't believe it at first. So I was in New York at the time that Spiral came to me about to actually direct a Broadway show, which is like a lifelong passion of mine. I love theater, I love Broadway. And I got a phone call from Mark Berg, who is the head of Twisted Pictures with his partner, Orin Kulis. And they said, hey, where are you right now? And I said, I'm in New York. And they said, we need you in Los Angeles. And I said, I'm moving to New York, I can't be there. And they say, we're sending you a script. And I said, okay. And they're like, and you're flying in to meet Chris Rock. But they didn't tell me it was a Saw movie. And I said, what is it? And they go, just read the script and get back to Los Angeles. And the script was called Organ Donor. And it did not have the Saw name on it. There was no Saw on it. So about 15 pages in, the realization hits, oh my God, this is a Saw movie. So I remember finishing it and I called Mark Berg and I was like, there's no way that Chris Rock is doing it. And he's like, oh yes he is. And he goes, and we're meeting him for lunch tomorrow. And I just remember sitting down across the table from Chris Rock, who I very rarely get starstruck, but I'm sitting next to him and he's talking to me about Saw 2 and Saw 3 and Saw 4 and then onwards. And it was this weird, surreal moment of this is really happening. What's great about Chris, though, is is that a lot of people pose. They pretend to be a genre fan. They pretend to be experts in whatever is they're doing. No, he is. The passion and his kind of love of this genre just oozes off him. So it was definitely a surreal moment. I'll tell you the most surreal moment was I had found out that Chris was going to do the movie. I'd only met him that one time at breakfast. And my wife and I are watching Tambourine, his Netflix special, and my phone rings. And my phone is on like a coffee table, so it's facing up so you could see it. And we're watching Tambourine, and the phone rings, and it's Chris Rock calling me. And so my wife looks down and sees the Chris Rock thing. And I was like, hold on, I got to pause Chris Rock so I can talk to Chris Rock. It was this this weird, surreal moment.
2: Ugh, I got to talk to another Saw fan.
3: Damn. I know. <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean, I remember vividly hearing about it myself. And after years of hearing that other people are encountering people who turned out to be Saw fans, and there was always this feeling of... Eyeing one another across a room, and it'd be like, oh, yeah, you know the intricacies of the plot of Saw Five as well as I do. This is great. And of course, naturally, it follows that some of those people are going to be world famous A list movie stars, but it's still surprising when it happens. How was it for you to, obviously, you know, it'd been 10 years or more since you? last had any involvement with the franchise. And and I imagine the demands of making a Saw film back when there was one coming out every year and they were following on directly from each other in terms of plot and characters were very different from the demands of this, a new Saw film for the first time in nearly half a decade and, and one with an entirely new set of characters. What were the differences in approaching this versus approaching your previous Saw films?
3: Honestly, it felt like doing Saw 2 all over again and the way that there was a, when I did saw two, I was 25 years old, I believe. There was a constant fear of being replaced or fired. I think it's called the imposter syndrome. Like, when are they gonna walk in and realize I shouldn't be here? Showing up to spiral every day was the same exact feeling because it's the first time that I've worked with A-list actors like this where the stakes were so high. There was a constant nervousness. I talked about when I left Saw 4, I felt that there wasn't that shot of adrenaline anymore. There was too much adrenaline on Spiral because I would literally walk in. I remember the first day that I walked in to see Samuel L. Jackson. I literally froze. And it was the first time that I found myself nervous and scared and shy. Because I was like, here's a guy that I've grown up watching on TV in some of the most badass roles ever. And he's the first line he's about to utter in my movie is mother. And I was just like, how is this happening? So, yeah, there was a sense of nervousness and also a sense of responsibility, which I've never felt before, because I was a part of the three early Saw films that that all opened number one, that all did and performed well. And then here I am back again to try to redo that. There was much more, I think, pressure than there ever has been on a movie I've done before to kind of go back to that and bring that back to the franchise.
2: What do you think are the differences in terms of the horror landscape that it fits into now? Obviously, The Saw films had a huge part in shaping the horror landscape of the 2000s and had countless imitators. Now, obviously, sometime later, it's a a totally different world. How much do you see Spiral in particular as being
3: kind of reinvented for a new era? I don't know if Spiral will do that. I think you're at a really interesting time right now with people like Ari Aster making things like Hereditary and Midsommar and all of these films, which is a completely different style of horror film. One of my favorite movies recently is that Robert Eggers film The Witch or even Lighthouse, which I thought was just fantastic. But a Saw movie would not work in that style. Like if I were to make a movie right now, if I were to say what type of film would I make, it would more fall to that side of it. But I don't think that that is what Saw is. And so the idea is how can you repackage Saw, redo it, hitting the original fan base but also bringing in more mainstream audiences. And so I, I hope what this movie does is, is it will bring in a new audience and then reintroduce them to the original films. I think it's the perfect gateway into the Saw universe because, you know, so many people I meet say, I could never watch one of those. They're, I could never watch one of those. Too horror, too bloody. But they're really not. I mean, yes, there's blood in them, but they're much more than that. So I'm hoping that what Spiral will do is people will see it, they will dig it, and they'll say, I want to go back and rewatch the original films, which then will bring popularity to those type of films again. I think Spiral is more grown up in the way that when I was in my 20s, non-married, no kids, violence was a gimmick. It was something that we tried to do, I tried to do, to see if I can one-up my friends, if I can one-up Eli Roth or Rob Zombie. There was a friendly competition that I was filming Saw 2 and Eli, maybe we saw 3, and Eli was doing one of the new Hostel films. We would text each other. Hey, I remember Eli texted me I just ripped someone's nose ring out. And then I sent them a picture of Saw 3 where someone's ripping chains off their jaw. And I was like, I ripped someone's jaw off. And like, that was what it was. It was a gimmick. And I don't think that it's a gimmick anymore in Spiral. So I think they've definitely grown up. But the hope would be that people see Spiral, they dig it, and they go back and rewatch the original eight films.
2: And perhaps further chapters from the book of Saw. Exactly. That is the hope. Would you potentially have any interest in pulling further pages from the book to continue the metaphor?
3: Possibly. I'm back to that being excited again about the franchise, about the world, about the producers and everyone. But, you know, don't count the chickens before they hatch. Let's just get Spiral out there and have people like it. And then we can talk about making another one.
2: I can't let you go before I ask you about perhaps the single most spectacular thing about your original three Saw films the in-camera scene transitions and the sets presumably being built practically on top of one another to facilitate them. Could you talk about a bit about how that was ever possible, especially given how quickly you had to be turning these movies out for a release every single year?
3: There was a movie that I watched maybe a year or two before doing Saw Two called Jerry and Tom, and it was the production designer was the same production designer that did the Saw films and eventually directed one called David Hackle. And there was this amazing scene where Sam Rockwell was walking to a car dealership in winter, and it's snowing, and the camera is on a crane, and it cranes down and kind of goes through a brick wall. And then it's summer, and he's now in shorts, and I kept rewinding it to figure out how they did it. And I loved that. I just thought it was clever. And I wanted to, you know, coming from theater, part of what theater is is choreography. It's the choreography of the actors, of the sets, of the lights. I wanted to showcase choreography as well. I remember one transition we did in Saw 4 upset the producers so much they paid tens of thousands of dollars to paint it out because it was confusing to the eye. And it it was. It was was an awesome shot. And it basically involved – it was a Tobin Bell mirror reflection shot that was all done practically, no visual effects, where you saw him in one environment, younger, and then he walked through a mirror into a bathroom and then turned around and you're now seeing his reflection. It was just this crazy shot that involved – half a day of planning, uh, another half a day of shooting. And when you saw it, it looked like a magic trick. It didn't look real. It was so fantastical in what happened. They literally had to paint everything out. And it still makes me happy to this day, the amount of money they spent to make it look normal, even though it was this, I just love those. I think they're clever and they make me happy to do it. And, and it makes it fun. It makes going on set fun because shooting is monotonous. You, you could do a take 50 times. You wait hours and hours and hours to do that one take, you do 50 times. When you're doing one of these transitions, there's energy on set. It's fun for the camera guys. It's fun for the actors. It's fun for the grips. That adrenaline shot I talk about, it just fills the the stage with adrenaline. Well, and I
2: think, yeah, fun being the operative word. Like you, I've had to try and convince a lot of people that these films are not unbearably gruesome to watch who are maybe a bit squeamish. And my counter argument is always they're really fun. It's like being thrown into this big puzzle that you get to solve for an hour and a half. And then, you know, there's seven, eight, nine more films to watch after that. Exactly. And they tend to eventually come around to my way of thinking after I strap them down and show them five or six Saw films. Thank you so much, Darren. I really appreciate it. And it's been
3: great to chat. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much, Darren Lynn Balsman, for speaking with Charlie there. Now, as you'll know if you've been following the pod, it just wouldn't be an episode of Seeing Saw without our regular feature, Jigsaw's Trap Race, pitting the traps of the franchise against one another in a vicious and hotly contested fight to the death. In round one, the bathroom trap from the first film won the day, before going on to lose to the razor box hand trap from the second film. Last episode, the razor box faced off against the pig vat, and the pig vat won the day, drowning its competitor in guts and live maggots. But before we can figure out the ultimate winner of this episode, we will, of course, need to determine the best of the traps from Saw 4. Quick recap, you've got the mausoleum trap with the two guys, one with his eyes sewn shut, the other with his mouth sewn shut, a winch in the middle and it's reeling them in. We've got the bed trap that we just talked about with Marty Adams. This is a sexual offender's limbs all pulling off in one go. You've got the chair trap with the hair in another sort of winch device, winching a lady's scalp off of her head. The knife trap that we've also talked about a bit already with Cecil pushing his face into some knives I'm not going to credit the razor wire that he ultimately meets his demise in as a separate trap. That's all sort of part of that one, I think. Then there's the ice block trap with Donnie Wahlberg hanging by his neck on a melting block of ice with a pair of ice blocks. Also waiting, ready above him to crush him. And you've got the spike trap with the couple spiked together. The same spikes go through them both. And the only way out is for the woman to remove the spikes while knowing that it will kill her abusive husband. So, does anybody have a favourite from that little lot, from the Saw 4
2: traps? I'd like to make a case for the scalp one. What are we calling it? The
0: chair trap? The hair trap? The chair chair trap? trap. The
2: chair hair trap. (laughs) Because having seen this film multiple times, I think only on this latest rewatch did I really understand quite how much there is going on in that trap. So, obviously, Riggs' instruction is to let these people save themselves and not try to help them. And the extent to which that ties into the traps waxes and wanes a little bit, but it's very clear with this one, because I hadn't realized that, of course, if he'd just left her there, nothing would have happened. The chair would never have activated and she would have been fine. It's the fact that he tries to save her that starts the old hair winch going, and pulls the old scalp halfway off her head. Grim.
0: Grim. And also just something quite physically gnarly about the idea of your scalp being pulled off.
2: There's little bursts of blood from where the sort of seam breaks that's very uh, grisly.
0: There's something about certain kind of like fingernails, teeth, a scalp thing. And I wonder whether it's because most of us, if we're lucky, the sort of idea of like, all of our arms and legs being pulled off at once, or our rib cages being opened—like that's not really within our realm of experience. But I think most people have had the experience of cracking a tooth or having a nail ripped off to the quick, and there's blood at the edge of your nail. So we can sort of relate to those traps just a little bit more as audience members. That's my theory behind why those ones are so hard to watch.
2: One more thing I'll say for it as well—it's I think perhaps the trap where Jigsaw's ideology is most subtly instilled in the trap, because there's a second trap within the trap, where when Rig does manage to free her, she is told that you now have to kill Rig with a knife that's hidden in the room, otherwise Rig will turn her in for being a pimp. And so Jigsaw's saying to Rig, oh, you want to help these people? They just as soon kill you.
0: Yeah, and I think it's another great example of Jigsaw being able to sort of really predict human behaviour quite well, because I don't think everyone would commit a murder to avoid being prosecuted for,
1: what is it, solicitation or running a brothel. Yeah, I also do think that actually to go against this pick, Jigsaw is assuming a lot about this character here, because he is assuming that Riggs will turn her in and will try to prosecute her, which is a bold assumption. It's not very Jigsaw-y.
2: Well, he knows Rig is honourable. I think he has some fairly disdainful, dismissive attitudes about people he considers beneath him, Jigsaw. And he's just proven right time and time again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Anna, do you have a favorite Saw 4 trap?
1: So I was going to go with the bedroom trap because it is very well deserved. It's very gnarly. However, I think I have to go with the mausoleum one. Because on my most recent watches, I think it's both very simple. It is escapable because Art Blank does escape, but also really at the heart of it, what it's trying to do is promote teamwork. That's nice. They fail. But it does try. The thing I
0: like about the mausoleum trap is I think it's the first time that we have, and I'm sure you'll correct me if I'm wrong, an oppositional trap where you've got to fight the other person who's also in a trap. And those do feel particularly harsh.
2: One objection to it, it's over before it begins. Because the only moment you can actually do anything to affect the outcome is before the winch starts turning. You just got to pull the chain through as far as you can before it starts turning. Once it starts turning, it's fixed. So it's foregone conclusion by that point. I mean, not because then they scrap about and one of them kills the other, but in theory.
0: Yeah, who's going to win? The blind guy or the guy with his mouth sewn shut? That's a dramatic tension. I suppose.
2: The, the winch is a distraction, to be fair.
0: Okay, so do we have any sort of group consensus on what might be the winner of those four that's going to go up against the pig vat?
2: I mean, I just think the scalping seat as a sort of emblem of Jigsaw's reactionary politics and devilish devices.
1: Also problematic approaches to morality and efficiency. I'm actually, I'm convinced by Charlie's defense of the scalping seed or the chair hair trap. So I'm going to move over to his camp.
2: It made it to the poster as well. Always a good sign. That is very true.
1: Yeah. And having watched the traps of Saw 4 featurette
0: on the DVD, they had a nightmare setting that one up. So I know you're not meant to necessarily know that when you're judging the traps, but they really sweated to make that one work because it was just pulling the wig off her head. And it <laughs> so for in terms of technical achievement as well, I think there's a great case for the chair hair trap.
2: Points for effort.
0: plus, it's fun to say chair hair trap. <laughs> so the chair hair trap, our ultimate trap from saw four, that now faces off against a bit of a favorite of mine, the pig vat trap with a uh, judge who is trapped in the bottom of a vat, rapidly filling with pig guts, live maggots, all that good stuff, a real disgusting soup, and he's going to drown in there unless Jeff can help him out, which he does. Jeff helps him out and he survives the trap. What do we think is more brutal and disgusting, that or the chair hair trap? And, you know, is brutal and disgusting even the criteria?
2: Pig fans.
1: Pig Pig that that
0: all
2: the way. Pig Vat. No, I can't agree. When you say saw, what do you think? You think mechanisms, you think iron wrought devices like There
1: are mechanisms in the pig vat? How do you think the pig sludge gets
2: sludged? It's yeah, but there you go. You said it yourself. Sludge. It's a sludge trap. That's just not jigsaw. It's a nice novelty. And I look, I didn't totally object to it being the trap of the week that week. But I just don't think it can compare with a real classic, canonical, mechanical jigsaw trap, like the chair hair trap.
0: Okay, logic guy. You said that you think jigsaw, you think gears and rust and all of this sort of thing. But I'm also going to say you think jigsaw, you think pigs.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The chair hair trap woman... Is wearing a pig's mask when it begins.
1: It's not part of it's the not trap, enough though, pig, is it? This is integral. So this gonna... has
2: everything. You can't catch me up on the this. The
1: pig Vad also has all the emotional components. It has the team building aspect to it. You know, the judge needs Jeff to save him. It has the emotional stress of Jeff having to burn his dead son's belongings to get the key and save someone else. He's learning a valid moral lesson, altruism, letting go of your anger. Rick learns
2: a valuable moral lesson. No, he doesn't. It's He's still bit, an efficient cop. It's just a bit complicated.
1: Pig Vat. The Pig Vat's the winner. Pig bat.
2: I think... Look. Pig
1: Vat. Pig Vat.
2: Fine.
0: We've overruled. <laughs> Fine. Like you even need to agree. There's two of us and one of you. <laughs> okay, so the Pig Vat is this week's winner of Jigsaw's Trap Race and will go forward to a future episode Saw five, Charlie, what what have we got coming up in Saw Five?
2: Well, Saw Five is I like to think of it almost as a bit of a reaction against Saw Four. Things got very dense with the mythology, there was a lot of plot detailing. So Saw Five, a little bit more straightforward, a little bit more fun, dare I say it, and something that Anna alluded to earlier, it's all about the importance of teamwork.
0: And Anna, any particular high points you're looking forward to in
1: Saw Five? Not to give away anything, so I'm just gonna keep it really, really vague. I'm looking forward to a lot of smushing in Sol 5.
0: Smushing. Sounds There's a lot of smushing. Almost romantic.
1: You could say maybe it is in another world, in another universe. It's so romantic.
0: So we've reached the halfway point of our rewatch of the first eight Saw films, but of course a new one is just around the corner. Spiral from The Book of Saw is out on May 14th or May 17th for our UK listeners. If you're a diehard hard Hoffmaniac or a newly pledged member of the Strami Army, you'll want to get along. We can practically hear the iconic music already. Thanks so much for listening and please remember to see as I see, Feel as I feel, save as I save, and of course, rate and review the podcast
1: as I rate and review the podcast. Seeing Saw is a Little Dot Studios production for Lionsgate. The show is hosted by
0: Catherine Bray, Anna Bogutskaya, and Charlie Shackleton.
2: It's produced by Jake Cunningham and Harold McShiel, with production support from Ellie Aitken.
1: And we're edited by Content is Queen.
2: Don't look now, Anna.
1: Are we stuck in Catherine's trivia trap?
0: You are stuck in my trivia trap. My top piece of trivia for Saw 4. Donnie Wahlberg, who was nominated for Choice Scream at the 2016 Choice Awards for his work in the Saw films... That's not the trivia. The trivia is that between 2005, Saw 2, and 2009, Donnie played five separate roles as detectives, plus two repeat performances as Detective Eric Matthews in his second and third Saw outings for a grand total of eight on-screen turns as a detective in just five years. I've worked out. That is a detective every 7.5 months.
2: That is a suitably complicated trivia trap for Saw 4. I feel like I'm watching the film again already.